Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday, uh, I went for a hike around 10 o'clock up on Mount Falcon, you know, just the west of town. Hiked for a long time, came back all sweaty and gross. And I remember while I was hiking, I kept thinking, it's going to be so awesome tonight because I don't have to do anything. I just get to go to worship and don't have to do anything. And uh, Susan said, everybody's been trying to call you, so I, uh, you need to call Michael. So I called Michael, and uh, Michael picked up the phone on the other end, and there's this raspy voice, can barely talk, sounds like he's dying. And, and he says, yeah, I got a fever of 102. I just was at the doctor. I've strep throat, I can't do anything. That's two o'clock, and, and I had to leave to get up to the Saturday night service at three o'clock, and we didn't have music, we didn't have message, we didn't have anything. So I thought, holy something. And I sat, got in the shower, and Susan said, hey, you ought to show one of those Downside Up videos. And I thought, well, we've, we've shown those, you know, except there was one that we showed the short version. I thought, well, we could show the extended version. And then while I'm showering, I'm thinking, well, this is the, the altar service, and I do have something to say about altars, and I do have a verse that I'd love to talk about that I think is really important. And, and then I realized, oh, gosh, we really do have something to talk about. So um, this morning, uh, Let's uh, open our hearts and hear what God has to say to us because I think he's, he's got something to say, okay? So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you're sovereign. You're Lord over all of these things. So you know what you're doing when we do not know what we're doing. So we surrender our hearts to you now, and we ask that you would speak to each one of us. Um, and that would include me, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, for 1,500 years, the Jews were commanded to sacrifice. That was the way that they were to worship the Lord. And no one really understood the meaning of the sacrifice. It's just that God laid out all these elaborate details for how they were to sacrifice. Uh, and they knew that the sacrifices somehow were the judgments of God. That, that, that was his, his judgment. And so there were different types of sacrifices. One of the sacrifices was called the Ola, or the burnt offering. That's what no Noah offered uh, right after the boat landed on the, and the rainbow came out and everything. And, and the Ola usually gets translated burnt offering, and uh, it means uh, something like a gift. So we always think of the sacrifices only as these painful, terrible things, but the Ola was like if, if you, you, you made a roast lamb for your husband, um, the, he would enjoy the, the fragrance, would fill his nostrils, and that's what the Bible says about the burnt offering. It, it was a gift. And then they also had this thing called the sin offering, where if you had sinned or violated some law or something, supposedly that offering somehow carried that sin and then paid for that sin. But there are all sorts of offerings, really elaborate. But with all of the offerings, all of the sacrifices, the worshiper would come into the sanctuary, um, with, or the outer sanctuary, with the sacrificial animal, the, the victim, and then they would lay their hand on the animal, symbolizing that they were somehow connected to the animal. Then the priest would come and take the animal and slit its throat, draining out the blood because the life was in the blood and the blood belonged to God. And then they would sacrifice the, the animal on an altar, this, this big altar. Altar, and this is called an, an altar service. 
and the sacrificial animal would then be received by fire. In the Old Testament, fire comes down from heaven and ignites the fire on the altar because it's like this eternal fire. And the fire was a symbol that the sacrifice was received and uh, taken up into heaven, received us this uh, incredible, incredible gift. Well, that means that uh, worship in the temple for 1,500 years was this bizarre event. Um, so you can imagine the, the pain, uh, the struggle, the fear that was involved with it. And, and keep in mind that God never explained all of this. Have you ever noticed that in your life? That he has you go through things and he doesn't explain why? Well, for 1,500 years, he had the Jews go through this. Uh, so this was, was terrifying. And yet it was one other thing. And, and this is kind of weird. And Glenn, I, am I real loud? I sound real loud to me. I'm super loud, so I'm hurting my own ears. Okay, so, they, so they, it was this wild experience where it was this painful, um, frightening event, uh, smoke, animals bleeding, and then it was also this other thing, it was like a barbecue, because after they would cook the animals, um, then they would have like a party with the priest in, in the temple courts, in the outer sanctuary, in front of the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant was. That was, that was worship. For 1,500 years, that was worshiped, and peop people wondered, well, what does it all mean? And then, you know, Jesus came, and uh, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus was sacrificed, and Scripture says that with Jesus, all righteousness is fulfilled. And the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices, and I think we American Christians in particular think, good thing Jesus did that. So I don't have to. Then Paul writes this in Romans uh, 12.1. This is the high point of, of Romans, and this is the verse I want to look at this morning. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your logical worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern or prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is the altar service. And uh, our acceptable worship is to present ourselves as a, as a living sacrifice. Uh, kind of like to pick up your cross. So Jesus picked up his cross, but we're supposed to pick up our cross. Paul says that that's what we're supposed to do, and then he goes on in Romans and he explains what it is to live a holy life, what it is to love people the way God loved us, what it is um, to, to live out um, our Christian testimony, and it's all to be sacrifice. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of terrifying, right? I mean, God can be terrifying. The, the gospel can be terrifying. Worship, I mean, when I read that, and you've been to services where people say, you need to present yourself as a, as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. That's terrifying. And yet Paul is also the guy that wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Have no anxiety about anything, um, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Have no anxiety about anything, but, but, but gee whiz, Paul, I'm a, I'm a little stressed about this living sacrifice thing. It kind of feels like we're missing something sometimes, right? Like something's been cut out of the story. And, and so I want you to hold those thoughts 
and watch this movie. Don't you hate it when they edit these movies at the very best part? But then again, I mean, maybe it's good that they do. My kids don't need to see the sex and violence, and I probably shouldn't be seeing those sex scenes either. In some ways, I guess it's kind of reassuring to know that there are people out there watching out for me and my family on a Friday night. But it also seems like it's kind of happening on Sunday morning with the Bible. And frankly, I just don't find that so reassuring. I mean, it's like there are these verses that never show up in sermons. And when they happen to be read in Bible studies, the Bible study leader always feels this need to explain them away. I think I always suspected that there'd be like shameful or embarrassing sections of scripture um, that they might be interested in covering up. But, but I figured it'd be stuff like the massacre of the folks at Jericho or threats of outer darkness and uh, eternal fire or maybe the erotic portions of the Song of Solomon, I say I will climb the tree and lay hold of its fruit. You know, I, I figured that they might try to edit out um, the kind of stuff that they cut out of this movie, but I was wrong. I won't go into details here, but I've learned very painfully that what the powers that be seem to consider most dangerous aren't verses about sex and violence, but in fact verses about the glory and power of God's grace. And not that it's small, but that it's infinite. And so I, I guess I have to say that I've become rather intrigued by these verses that we find on the cutting room floor. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And 
I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, says Jesus. Behold, I make all things new, says the Lord, from the throne at the end of the revelation. Now, these are only some of what I call the Bible verses banned by Bible-believing believers. Now, some Bible-believing believers will say, well, these verses can't be true because they contradict other verses. Well, I think the whole Bible is true. And if something's not true, it's, it's us. Some Bible-believing believers will say, those verses don't mean what they say. And yet, when I ask them to translate the verses in a manner in which they would say what they mean, they won't. And that's good. They should be stressed about messing with God's Word. So I've been wrestling with this question now for, for years. Why do so many Bible-believing believers seem to believe that so much of the Bible is, like, dangerous to believe? I don't know, but I could conjecture. For one, I think maybe we're afraid not to be afraid. We think if I'm not motivated by fear, maybe I won't be motivated at all. And fear is the beginning of wisdom, but love is the end, says scripture. See, I think we can't imagine a life fueled entirely by love. And two, like the principalities and powers of this world, we like to control each other with fear. Fear of punishment and the promise of reward. We have faith in threats rather than faith in the gospel, the romance of God. And three, maybe that's because we lack faith in God's ability or God's desire to save. In other words, we lack faith in Jesus. You know, the name Jesus literally means God is salvation. I think we must believe that we are salvation, that we're saved by our own will rather than God's will, which is Jesus. And last of all, and perhaps scariest of all, we don't want to be like Jesus. In other words, we don't want to be made in the very image and likeness of God. We don't want to forgive as we have been forgiven. In other words, we don't like crosses. And I get that. Now, there may be other reasons, but not wanting to forgive, a lack of faith in grace, the principles and powers of this world, and fear are not good reasons for editing Scripture. Well, I'd suggest not editing Scripture at all. So what the hell? Sorry to be so blunt, but that seems to be the appropriate question. When we find scripture on the cutting room floor, perhaps we need to wonder, is it heaven that's protecting us from hell, or is it hell that's protecting us from heaven? Is it something good protecting us from evil, or is it something evil protecting us from the good? God is good, and God is love, and his word is love. Why would we need protection from the word of, of love? Why would we need protection from the Bible? It, it feels like something or someone is trying to turn the greatest love story into a threat, trying to turn the romance of God into a tragedy. Who would want to protect us from falling in love with God? Maybe we ought to take another look at the verses we find on the cutting room floor. Maybe what looks like a threat is really the romance of God. 
maybe we've got this whole thing upside down, and maybe God turns every downside up. you? I paid for it. I know. It cost you everything. Don't pretend like you know what I've been through. You have no idea. You're right. I don't know what you've been through. But I know who you are. Go ahead. Call me a whore. No. 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 You are not a whore. You're my wife. everywhere. That, that place was horrible. I hate it. And don't go back. Stay home with me. It's not that simple. So she just needs some time. And maybe that's why we exist in time. Uh, maybe God is a great lover who's pursuing us. You know, that story around the part where I was talking is really the story of Hosea from the book of Hosea. Nate uh, wrote that, who was playing the drums in the service. And when we edit out part of the story, well, the greatest love story, the romance of God, turns into a threat. And you know, a whole lot of what I believe this church is to be about is, um, well, speaking about the BVBBBBs, the Bible verses banned by Bible-believing believers, 
Because when we ban those verses, we change the story. So when you, as you leave the, this room, you'll see on the wall this sign that says, the sanctuary seeks to represent these underrepresented truths that God is one and so his judgment is love. And uh, God is love and so he desires to save. And God is almighty and so he can save. And God is Jesus and so he does save. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And whenever I talk like this and people take a look at the, the sacrifice that some of us have paid, they, they go, well, what difference does it make? Why do we talk about things? What, what difference does this uh, theology, what difference do these ideas make? How does it make a difference in my life? How does it change anything in my life? And now let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2 again, all right? Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, ah, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or logikos, your logical worship, or lat latria. It's like what the priests would do in the temple. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that, that by testing you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I appeal to you, therefore. Ray Stedman was a friend of mine. He was a well-known Bible teacher years ago. And I remember he used to always say this. He used to always say, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is there for, right? And that verse in Romans 12 begins with, with a therefore. And then I remember uh, Ray used to always say this too. He said, you know, I believe that the Holy Scriptures are inspired by God, but the chapter divisions are inspired by the devil. And, and there may be something to that. You know, the chapter divisions weren't put in the text until like a thousand years later in the Middle Ages by monks just trying to keep their place. And so the, the therefore at the beginning of chapter 12 is, it might be a, a really huge therefore, and it is because it marks the division in Romans between what uh, Bible scholars would call the, the didactic portion or the, or the proclamation, the, the teaching, and the ethical portion. In other words, Paul says a bunch of stuff and then he says, so therefore, do, do these things. It's a huge therefore. So uh, what comes before the therefore is why we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. What comes before the therefore is why we turn ourselves, f uh, f uh, we train ourselves in godliness, in the words of Paul and Timothy, why we toil and strive. It's why we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright godly lives, in his words in Titus 2. It's why we disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the words of Jesus. What comes before the therefore is why we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is our logical worship. And so this is the question for the morning. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, Romans 11, don't know if you knew this, you might need some theological training to know this, but Romans 11 comes right before Romans 12. And uh, Romans 11 
is the end of what people sometimes call the Romans road. And, and the Romans road is kind of the story of salvation. So Roman begin, Romans begins with the story of the fall and how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In chapter one, it talks about all the controversial things like homosexuality and stuff like that. Beginning of chapter two, Paul says, so you're all guilty, you all stand condemned. In other words, all of humanity is guilty. And then he goes on to talk about the faith of Abraham. And he goes on to talk about Jesus, who is the ultimate Adam and what he did on the cross. And he keeps talking about uh, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy and all the scary verses about Israel uh, being, you know, cut off and Pharaoh being hardened. And then all of that ends uh, in Romans chapter 11. It's like the end of the story. And, you know, the end of the story is like the revelation of the plot. And so the question is, what is the therefore, therefore? What does it, what does it mean? And so let's read Romans 11, 25, down through 12, 2, okay? This, you can follow along up here. Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness, the pleroma, all the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's a pretty big statement. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness. There won't be any more ungodliness, all right? He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Get that, enemies? But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, a person could be an enemy of God and also elect of God. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order. Why were they disobedient? In order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That was one of those Bible verses banned by Bible believers that I quoted in the film. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. All the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. In other words, you can't figure out all of his judgments. Paul realized, I just said something amazing, but you can't figure it all out. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him or betrayed him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your logic. This is only logical. It's your logical worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may prove, you may discern, you may live out what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So why are we to present ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, the reason we present our bodies as a living sacrifice is that from him and through him and to him are all things. For God consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. In other words, the gospel is the greatest story that you can possibly imagine. Therefore, a sacrificial life 
is only logical. It's your logical worship. In other words, if the BVBBBBB is edited out, if the story is incomplete, if Jesus did not succeed at seeking and saving the lost, if Jesus did not take the sins of the world, if Jesus did not destroy the work of the devil, if it is not finished, if God does not have mercy on all, well then, God doesn't love his enemies, but tortures his enemies, and that might affect the way that we look at our enemies. I mean, if uh, we don't ask what is the therefore, therefore, if the story is not complete, then, well, like Jesus may be like still on the cross. He didn't take away the sins. He didn't finish his work. If the story is incomplete, well, then God is not salvation. I am salvation, right? He's counting on me to finish the story, which is real helpful when you're a pastor trying to get people to do things. God needs you, so you better get your crap together. If the story is incomplete, well, then everybody becomes like my competitor. We're all trying to complete it, like the survival of the fittest. If the story is incomplete, everything is terrifying. <laughs> and nothing really makes much sense. This week at our board, um, we were praying about this building and we're worried about whether we can keep the lease and we're working through all that stuff and what God is calling us to do. And, you know, it makes you panic. Like, how are we gonna finish this story? And I asked everybody to pray and, and my wife said, hey, um, I had a vision while we were praying. Can I just share it with you? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. Anything would help. Um, and she said, you know, I, I was, all of a sudden I, I saw myself standing in this room and I looked over and there was Jesus and I could tell he was writing my story. I knew that he was writing the story of Susan, the story of Susan's life. And you know, um, Jesus is the word and God creates all things through his word. So if you are a thing, that means you are being created by, or were created or are, however that works with space and time, by Jesus. Well, Jesus was writing the story of her life. And she said, Peter, I looked over, I knew it was a story of my life, she told all of us. And, and I walked over and as I looked down at it, I, I started thinking, that's not right. That's not the, no, Jesus, that's not the story of, of my life. And, and it was like he knew what I was thinking because he turned around and he handed me the pen. And so I sat down and I started writing. And she said, as I was writing, Jesus walked over, stood against the wall like this and, and just looked at me. And she said, as I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, I, or I, I didn't write. She said, I just tried and I tried and nothing made any sense. It, it just, I couldn't write it until finally Jesus came over and he went like this and I handed the pen back. He sat down and he wrote my story. And as he wrote my story, I thought, that's me. That's who I am. So you see, if, if uh, Jesus, if the story is incomplete, if he doesn't write our story, we have to try to write our story and everything is terrifying. But if the story is complete, if it is finished, well, then uh, it makes a difference because there is a logical conclusion. There is a logical result. If God makes all things new, if he really wins the story, if he's the author of the story, well, then uh, there's a logical conclusion. And uh, last night I had this picture in my mind that the kids emailed me on my cell phone. This is the picture right here. 
Um, these, are, these are my grown children at Comic-Con um, a few months ago. I don't know who that guy is. That's Brandy, Elizabeth's friend, and she's dressed like some kind of conquering Pokemon figure. I don't understand Pokemon very well, but he, she, she saves people. That's Elizabeth dressed like Sookie in the show First Blood. That's Jonathan dressed like Constantine in the movie Constantine, and that's um, Becky dressed like Ginny, uh, what's her name, Ginny Weasley in Harry Potter. My adult, my adult kids. And why are they dressed like that? Nobody said to them, hey, you better go out and dress like Ginny Weasley and Constantine. I never said to Becky, you know, Ginny, Ginny Weasley um, helped Harry Potter save the world, and she gets married to Harry Potter, and that's a really good thing to save the world and be married to the savior of the world, so you just better go do it. No, what happened? They, they watched the story. They watched the full story, and then something logically occurred. They began to dress like those people. They began to act like those people. That was their logical worship. If the Broncos win the Super Bowl this year, do you know what will happen the day following? Parties, everyone will go out and, and they'll buy t-shirts, right? They'll start dressing in orange and blue. Nobody has to say, you go out and buy a Broncos t-shirt, you, you dress yourself in orange and blue and you worship the Broncos. Nobody has to say that. It just happens. It's the logical conclusion uh, to what just occurred, uh, the Broncos' victory. It's their logical worship. And I think that's called faith and hope and love. It's the logical worship at the revelation of a great story. And what are they doing? Well, they're like becoming living sacrifices. They're offering their identity and they're receiving another identity on themselves. They're losing their lives. They're losing their homework, their anxieties, their responsibilities, and they're finding their lives in someone else. And you see, I think that's what uh, is the logical conclusion to our worship if Jesus wins, if he's finished the story, if he is the author of all things. And so what is the therefore, therefore? Was there for everything. It's the reason for everything. And uh, in case you're thinking, well, that's just Romans, I pulled out a, a few other verses that I thought were kind of amazing too. This is 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, so you can read this with me. Paul writes, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, this is why, for to this end we toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe, command, and teach these things. Why do we toil and strive? Because our hope set on the Savior of all people. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to or for all people. And, and what does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Uh, this is Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. Listen to this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came, he showed up, and he said to them, all authority. Okay, now if, you, if, if, 
if something is all authority, how, if all authority has been given to him, which is what he says, how much authority do we have? None, right? Unless he has it in us. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, <laughs> going therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in other words, Jesus shows up and he says, look guys, I did it. It's finished. I'm in charge. Uh, let me tell you the gospel. Um, I accomplished it. I finished it. I took away the sins of the world. I destroyed the work of the devils. I conquered death. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Now, therefore, go. And I'm with you always. Live out this story. Um, live out the story of my success. In fact, that's what Jesus says. We become his body. His life gets lived out through us and we prove the will of the Father. You know, 50 days after Jesus um, sacrificed himself on the cross or was sacrificed, on Pentecost, the disciples were all gathered together in one place and fire fell. And they fell into the fire. They fell into that they fell in love with God as they fell into the fire. The fire was love. They became a living sacrifice. They worshiped, and their worship wasn't terror, but ecstasy. They lost their lives, and they found them. And so God consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Therefore, present yourselves as living sacrifices. That's your logical worship. And do you understand that's why we come to worship here every Sunday? It's not so that I can tell you, well, these are the four things you need to do or the three things that you need to do to make your life work. No, we come here to hear the story that Jesus that Jesus conquered, that Jesus won, that our Father is good. We come here to hear the story that it might become our logical worship. We come here and every week I try to preach or someone preaches a message about who God is, who Jesus is and what he does. And then we celebrate this, that on the night he was betrayed by all of us, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the gospel. This is the story. This is the announcement that God in Christ Jesus has done it. And when we believe it, well, it changes us and our entire life becomes a logical worship, a reasonable worship, the only thing to do after witnessing such goodness. And so this morning, God calls you to his table to see the story, and not just see the story, but ingest the story. And then the story becomes your story. So why do we do it? Because God has done it. That's what the therefore is therefore. All right? Let's worship. We invite you to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done it.
that you really are the Savior of the world. And so, Lord God, I pray that as we come to this table and surrender um, our fear, our shame, our anxiety, and believe in your goodness, that, Lord Jesus, we would uh, surrender to you with joy, with ecstasy, that our lives would be that logical worship, the thing that we would naturally do after seeing your goodness. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. And so you see, the, the gospel is good news. And we're called to preach it. And, and the word in, in Greek, it means to proclaim. It's a proclamation that he's done it, that he has paid, that it is finished, that God makes all things new, which means you have to make nothing new, that God is salvation, which means you are not salvation. And when we hear the proclamation, when we believe the proclamation, it changes us. And we begin to live the proclamation, not because we have to, but because we want to. And that's called faith. That's his life showing up in your life. And so may you believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.